Well, good morning. It's good to be here with each of you. And as we have already talked about this morning, happy 4th of July. And so this morning, as we continue our summer series in the book of Psalms, we're going to bring together an aspect of Independence Day and our study of the Psalms. So this past week at our small group, I wondered what the children in our group, we have uh, 10, at least 10 children, age 10 and younger, and younger that are in our small group. I wondered what they knew or thought about uh, the 4th of July. So I asked one of the 10-year-olds, I said, what are we going to be celebrating on July 4th? And he said, independence. And then the Declaration of Independence was signed on July 4th, 1776, to get our freedom from England. And then I asked him the all-important question, freedom from what? And he thought for a minute, and he said, independence from a king who was mistreating us. And he went on to talk a little bit about taxes and the Boston Tea Party and all those things. So, sharp kid. <laughs> um, so after a long history of abuses, as we've already heard from Edgar this morning, the Declaration of Independence explained why the colonies sought to overthrow their ruler. It declared that certain absolute rights exist that governments should never violate. And when a government fails to protect those rights, the people have the right and the duty to overthrow that government and establish in its place one that protects, protects those rights. So what does this have to do with the Psalms? Well, as we've already been singing this morning, we're going to consider a Psalm that proclaims God is our King. And this is not a biblically controversial idea. But as Americans, we seem to possess an inherent mistrust and antipathy towards subjection to royalty. And it's possible for this, for this shared national ethos to spill over into our spiritual lives. As Americans, the presence of a king can be seen as unnecessary, intrusive, and unwelcome. But we should not be confused. Our founders did not promote autonomy, the unreserved removal of authority, as if the American brand of freedom is the license to do whatever one pleases. They sought to replace oppressive, tyrannical authority with another form of rightful, just authority. Submission is not the problem, for rule of law is good and necessary. So, on this weekend that celebrates our national freedom from a cruel king, let's open the scriptures to deepen our allegiance to the rightful king, our holy God who executes righteousness and justice on earth. And so as we begin here in just a moment, reading a psalm together, there are two questions I'd like for you to have in mind. What kind of king do we serve? And how does one who's the subject of a king live and act? In other words, who is our king? And what is someone like who follows a king? If you can turn to Psalm 99. We'll read that together. Psalm 99. begins with a statement that has an exclamation point at the end. So there's uh, emotion and intensity uh, and energy behind this psalm. Psalm 99. The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion, 
He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity, and you have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. The psalmist here declares how exalted and holy the Lord is and how profound is the reverence and awe that we are to have for him, that in fact we owe him. As we've been learning this summer, there's a number of different types of psalms. We've heard of psalms of lament and psalms of wisdom and of thanksgiving. Another genre is the royal or the kingship psalm. And some of those are associated with the life, events in the life of an actual king of Israel at that time, a royal wedding or the installment of a new king. Others recognize the Lord himself as the king who reigns supreme. And so Psalm 99 is the second type. The preceding Psalms, 95 through 99, is a section of kingship psalms. And as we just read, structurally, Psalm 99 is interesting and it's quite straightforward. It's divided into three short sections. Each concludes with repetitive call to exaltation based upon a particular quality the Lord possesses. Verse 3, let them praise your great and awesome name, holy is he. And then verse 5, exalt the Lord our God, worship at his footstool, holy is he. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. The theme of Psalm 99, the title for this message is self-evident, exalt our holy king. It's reminiscent of the prophet Isaiah being ushered into God's presence, and heavenly creatures are surrounding the throne, and what are they calling out? Holy, holy, holy. Revelation 4 describes these creatures never ceasing to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. We serve an eternal holy king. We'll look at this in two movements, verses, verses 1 to 5 and the verses 6 to 7. In the first five verses, exalt our holy king of justice and righteousness. In the second part, exalt our holy God who answers, directs, and forgives. So the psalmist begins with two dramatic declarations in verse 1. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earths quake. Now in Psalm 93 and 97, it has the same initial claim, the Lord reigns. Psalm 93 says, the Lord reigns, he's robed in majesty. Psalm 97, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. So I don't know if you've ever asked a friend the common question, do you believe in God? And then you might hear, yeah, yeah, I, I, I believe there's a God. 
Well, it's not that he's simply there, remote, vaguely disinterested, or simply one player among many. Yeah, yeah, I, I believe there's a God. The true God reigns, exercising absolute power, possessing authority. He's unique, personal sovereign who feels and thinks and acts. He's a living being who rules over time, directing history, evaluating human behavior, rewarding and assigning consequences. In Psalm 47, another kingship psalm, we read, For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. The sovereign's realm extends over all his creation. Now, the pagan gods of the Israelites' worlds, of the world, such as Baal and Moloch, were imagined to be territorial gods. Their authority was confined, confined to a region or to a nation. So you had your god, you had your gods, you had your god, we have ours. In verse 1, we encounter the imagery of God as king. For it says that he reigns and he's enthroned. Now we naturally associate certain elements with royalty. If you just think of kingship, what image comes to your mind? We think of majesty and special privileges, honor, power, a domain to rule, and followers or subjects. So if I took this occasion this morning to announce to you, in fact, I'm a king. You'd have a few questions for me, I imagine. Uh, on what basis was I establishing this dominion? Over what realm did I actually have authority? And where are my followers? Now, if I proclaim myself to be your king, your questions would become even more pressing, wouldn't they? And upon reviewing my claims and my supposed credentials, you would however your personality is, softly or loudly say to me, uh, you are not the boss of me. <laughs> but something similar has actually happened. Someone has announced that they are your, that he is your sovereign. More than that, he alleges to be supreme over all, not possessing an inherited or a derivative authority. He asserts that you owe him allegiance for utterly unique reasons. As creator, the Lord rules his creation. It is by rights his, thus you belong to him. Artists own their paintings, inventors hold patents, parents possess legal authority over their children. And then if you're a Christian, the Lord has a second claim on you. Plainly stated, he bought you. And what was the purchase price? the precious blood of Jesus to buy you back from your rebellion and your sin. 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You've been bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. We are doubly owed by our sovereign. We're doubly owned by our sovereign as both creator and savior. He has graciously bestowed upon us the gift of life and then rescued us from the fatal mess we made of ourselves. So the language of master and subject perfectly fits our status. And we would have a very hard time telling him, you are not the boss of me. So what is the response 
to this kind of absolute power. Verse 1 says, let the people tremble. Let the earth quake. And so these parallel clauses are expressions of fear and of reverence before a mighty king. And it is wise to take the benefit, the benefits of a king's protection rather than incurring his displeasure. The psalmist lets us know that God is not only the ruler of all, he is the sovereign over Israel in particular. So I don't know if you noticed as we read through these verses all the allusions to his covenant people. In verse 1, it says he's enthroned above the cherubim, which are the figures on the Ark of the Covenant. It says, verse 2, the Lord is great in Zion. This reflects his special regard for his people in that place. The righteousness of Jacob is mentioned in verse 4. It's a reference to the tribes from the sons of Jacob. Verse 5, worship at his footstool. The Ark of the Covenant and Jerusalem are both in Scripture called the, his footstool. And then Moses and Aaron and Samuel are mentioned. These are leaders of the Hebrews. Pillar of cloud in verse 7. That's the means of divine direction for the Hebrews in the wilderness. And then verse 9, worship at his holy mountain, which refers to his presence in the temple. So you read through that and you realize, I think there's a theme here, right? He's drawing our attention to the fact that he is the king, not only of the whole world, but of the special person, tribes, and nation. In the first two verses and throughout the psalm, we cannot escape the fact that this universal king has particular, particular care and special attention to his people. And so this calls for a response. The king is exalted over all the people. That is, he towers over, he's high above their capacities, their understanding, and their reach. Thus, verse 3 invites a thankful acknowledgement of the goodness of the divine nature. Let them praise your great and awesome name. And then his first section concludes in verse 3 with a thrice-repeated declaration, Holy is He. And this forms a kind of chorus for each one of those sections to be sung at the conclusion before you move on to the second and then to the third. So if you were asked to explain the meaning of holy, what descriptors would you come up with? Because we're, we're, we've read Holy is he, holy is he, the Lord God is holy. Critical word in this psalm. It's very familiar, of course. But the fundamental idea behind the Hebrew word for holy is apart or separate. An object can be holy if it's set apart for sacred service. A person is holy if he or she is set aside for God's purposes. Calling God holy emphasizes his otherness, or separateness. Holiness stresses, stresses the distance between the Lord and his creation. He exists outside of all that he created. He's set apart from humanity. Morally, as between the pure and the unclean or stained, and also in the realm of being. He's eternal spirit with a divine nature. So what term would you think is most used throughout the Bible to describe God? You guessed it, holy. More than loving or just or merciful or powerful, that is the word most used, that God most used to describe himself to us. It's the only word that is used three times. Holy, 
holy, holy. As we read in Isaiah and Revelation. The immaculate purity of his nature is part of everything he is and does. It's the essence of his entire being, not simply an aspect of his personality. God's power is holy power. His love is holy love. His wisdom is holy wisdom. So what is it like for you and for me to hear about or to encounter a being who is perfection himself? What rises up inside of you when you hear of God's holiness? Well, we'll consider in a bit a response that's congruent with learning and meeting one who is wholly other. The next section, verses 4 and 5, reveals more about the excellencies of God before the psalmist once again prompts us to exalt our holy God. We read in, in verse 4, The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity and have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Great strength and sovereignty can be used for many purposes. It depends upon the character and the intentions of the person who holds it. What does the king do with his might? Well, he loves justice. He sees that equity is established. It's the kind of might that delights in the right. His force is used for just purposes only. He's not abusive or arbitrary or capricious with his power. His power is controlled in its exercise by his love of what is morally upright or good. His integrity is in view here. Just laws are set in place and they're carried out. There's no lack of equivalence between defining justice and its execution. Given the prevalence of kings as compelling historical figures and theological theme in Scripture, the intriguing question is, for verse 4, who is the king that is mentioned here? In addition to the creator God of Israel, is it pointing to another ruler as well? Well, yes, scholars recognize here the recurring theme of a coming king in the line of David. In a most significant chapter, 2 Samuel 7, the Lord revealed to David his plans to bless Israel and the entire world through someone in the lineage of David that would establish an eternal kingdom. And the Israelites eventually came to expect that this promised Messiah would be a powerful warrior who would reestablish the glory of Israel with the sword. But Jesus of Nazareth was a different kind of savior for the nation. His sacrificial death and resurrection opened the way to forgiveness and to new life for all. And while he now reigns eternally at God's right hand, all things are not yet as they should be. The kingdom of God is among us in a new way, yet in another sense it is still to be established. We live in the already, but not yet. As followers of Christ, we read the same words of Psalm 99 as ancient Israelites did 3,000 years ago but we understand their meaning, their fulfillment, and their consummation in a richer way. For we know the king that they're talking about is King Jesus. Of the many implications of God's people serving King Jesus, we know that the role of the church is to form us into kingdom people. We're a worldwide spiritual community who possess and proclaim distinctive values and commitments 
standing against worldly culture and the spirit of the age that refused to bow a knee to their rightful sovereign. Jesus' disciples profess allegiance ultimately to their invisible lawgiver and king. That's why totalitarian governments will always view biblical Christians as a formidable threat that must be subdued or eliminated. Now we turn our attention to the psalmist's second movement. In the first five verses, he exposes us to holiness enthroned. In the last four, he describes holiness encountered. So far, we've been reminded of God's transcendence, that he's wholly other, distant, unlike us in purity and in his nature. The holy king establishes and executes his moral perfection and integrity. And now we're confronted with a startling revelation. This mighty, unrivaled, and fearsome ruler has come near to his people, listening, answering, and personally forgiving and directing. Once again, highlighting the creator's heart for his chosen one, the the psalmist draws upon the history of the Hebrews to teach us about the Lord and ourselves. In verse 6, we read, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. Who are these men? Well, Moses and Aaron bridged the gap between God and his people during the time of the Exodus after God miraculously rescued them from Egypt. They called out to the Lord, and he answered. They performed the priestly role of mediators. Samuel, the prophet to King Saul and David, called to God also in times of national need, and he answered. Here we have an expanded understanding of God. The one initially characterized by being holy, that is separate, set apart other, is being noted for his availability and his personal responsiveness. Not only does he answer and direct, verse 6 tells us they initiated relationship by providing moral standards and wisdom, a design for our lives. He communicated statutes, ethical rails on which his people should run. So the transcendent God is also imminent. He's far away and near. And these men, Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, honor the Lord's design and kept the laws. This section reminds us that we do not serve an unknown God. We know who he is, and we know where to find him. His presence was manifested in Zion, on the holy mountain, in the Ark of the Covenant, in the pillar of the cloud. The message is clear. Seek him where he can be found. Under the Old Covenant, his manifested presence was in those physical spaces, like the tabernacle and the temple. And it was mediated by priests and bloods of bulls and goats. Under the New Covenant, he's not accessible to us in just one physical location over another. His people, that's us, are not restricted to a tribe or a nation as common descendants of Abraham. We're a global spiritual community united by faith in Jesus and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And our great high priest, Jesus, is the final mediator for all of us. So we are to seek God where he can be found. He's not a distant king. We've come to discover that divine royalty is incarnational. He's become one of us in our world 
while remaining majestic, glorious, and flawless. Yet he's accessible all the time wherever you are through his spirit and his word. So what a joyful summons. You've been invited by the king into his very throne room. And why would we linger in the outer courts? Well, what else can we learn about our holy king? The psalmist provides one more window into the nature and the character of our sovereign. Verse 8, O Lord our God, you answered them. You are a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. The psalmist repeats that we serve an answering God. And this seems to be a necessary reminder that God, who is far above us, infinite in wisdom and power, unbounded by time and physical space, is aware and responsive to you and to me. When I ask people uh, what their favorite kind of place is for a vacation, two answers seem to predominate. Ocean and the mountains. It's two places that people love to go. And these are two of my most cherished locations, for they help me to once again find myself uh, and to find the Lord. To walk in the vast silence of towering mountain peaks, or to stand on a beach, feeling the salty air and the grainy sand, hearing the ancient rhythm of the waves, and to see the stretch of the horizon. All of those things remind me of my place in God's order. It causes me to feel small, yet known. In renewed ways, I accept my insignificance in the immeasurable universe while affirming my value to the Creator. I recognize that this is a way to honor God's holiness. It's freeing to humble my tendency to self-exaltation and self-absorption and to accurately assess the distinctions between myself and God. The truth does set us free. And in this case, the holiness of God yields security. I know who I am and I have a better understanding of who he is. For a solitary, ill-equipped peasant to mount a coup in an attempt to assume the throne is foolhardy at best. To embrace my role as one submitted to a supremely powerful, just king who values me and lovingly responds to my pleas brings peace of mind and personal hope and stability. Frankly, it's very hard to justify a revolt. In verse 8, we learn that these men who kept God's commandments, like all of us, also failed at times. Thus, they needed two things which the Lord provided. He was a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoing. When there are offenses, troubling disobedience, God both heals the broken relationship and institutes consequences for the wrongdoing. To forgive sin and express abhorrence of it is a peculiar expression of the gospel. Our God loves the person and hates the sin. Therefore, he deals with both accordingly extending mercy to preserve the relationship while never overlooking the transgression, he punishes it. Now, when we read that God's an avenger of wrongdoing, this means he won't shy away from inflicting a penalty or dispensing punishment. Contemporary sensibilities might be uncomfortable with envisioning 
that God enforces penalties and that he exacts punishment. But imagine, if you would, at the Olympics later this month, if the officials decided not to enforce the rules. If swimmers without penalty could ignore the starter's gun and dive in to get a head start. In track and field, runners could freely shove one another to the ground. The logic of justice extends from a small illustration of, of, of the Olympics also to our playgrounds and to our neighborhoods and from classrooms to boardrooms. And in similar fashion, the Lord appropriately addresses our moral breaches. Both sides of the coin that God both forgives and gives consequences reinforce one another in our lives. We're encouraged not to despise or reject his mercy. And on the other hand, to not expect like treatment of moral failure and deceit. Listen to these two voices from the past express these twin truths. Charles Spurgeon, 19th century pastor, said, your sin, speaking to Christians, your sin is forgiven you. But so surely as you're a child of God, the rod of paternal discipline will be laid upon you if your walk be not close with God. John Calvin, 17th century church reformer, gives us the other side of the coin. There is nothing that more animates and encourages the faithful to render obedience to God than to find in this course of action that they are objects of paternal care and that the righteousness which God requires from his own people is on his part reciprocated by kind deeds. Mercy and discipline flow from the throne to us. And the kindness that Calvin speaks of is fully expressed in Jesus Christ. By God's plan, formed in eternity past, Jesus in his death took the terrible wrath, the punishment for our wrongdoing, and God's forgiveness is now offered by grace through faith. And that's what we've been celebrating and singing this morning. Those who trust in his death and resurrection are forgiven and given eternal life. These are the people who understand and gladly engage in verse 9 of this psalm. Exalt the Lord our God, for the Lord our God is holy. The psalmist has put on marvelous display a holy king who executes righteousness and justice, a holy God who answers, directs, and forgives. And the rightful response is to exalt, is to worship. So let's spend these last few minutes that we have around this idea. What does it mean to exalt God? If over the next seven days you fulfilled that command in a reasonable fashion, what would your life look like? Well, in thought, in feelings, in action, you would reflect the value and the reality of who God is. In any number of ways, you would ascribe worth to him. And you'd be growing and knowing and treasuring the Lord. And this would be experienced individually and corporately. In quiet moments when you're alone, with the people that you live with, in your small group, gatherings of Christian friends, and here in a corporate gathering like this. To exalt is to give worshipful praise, honor, and thanksgiving from the heart. 
Words like extol, magnify, and glorify come to mind. It's elevating by praising. Exalting has a sense of celebration, energy, and emotion associated with it. It's an active choice which engages the whole person, engages our mind, so there's content, engages our emotions, so there's expression. And Psalm 99 models this for us. It's content-laden about the object of our praise. God is great, awesome, loves justice, executes righteousness, answers those in need, provides directions, forgives, dispenses consequences to wrongdoings. That, that's the content of who our king is. So meaningful praise is accurate. It requires congruence between the words, the sentiments, and the object being addressed. That kind of objective understanding of God gives substance and fuel to honor and to thank him. And such knowledge elicits a response. Initially, I consider what I've learned. And then I make connections between those things. And I realize and I value more of who God is. And then from inside of me comes gratitude, wonder, awe, appreciation, and joy. And this is evidently the experience and the call of the psalmist in our text. Let the peoples praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Exalt our Lord God, for he is holy. Now, there's some intriguing questions surrounding our praise to the Lord. Sometimes we will honor or praise a person or a friend uh, because um, we want to give them a form of encouragement. The person doesn't realize that they possess a certain quality or that they've forgotten that they have it or they've come to question it. Also, a person can be underappreciated and can benefit from being acknowledged. But I don't know if you've thought of this, but God is not confused about who he is. He doesn't need to be lifted up or encouraged to know himself. He doesn't need us to tell him about himself so he can gain clarity and self-understanding. The self-existent creator doesn't need our encouragement. So does exalting the Lord make sense if he doesn't need it? Who are we doing this for? Similarly, how do we not respond to Psalm 99 as mere duty? Singing, praising, exalting, because it's commanded. It's like the, uh, the child that is told, your dad is in the living room in his chair. I want you to go in there and thank him. Are you aware of all of the things that he has done for you? Go in there, tell him you love him, and mean it. There's value in that, but there's true value in that and authenticity if he goes in and it comes from his heart, right? Not merely his duty. As he came to faith in Christ as an adult and wrestled through questions about God's existence and his nature, C.S. Lewis, renowned Christian thinker and author, was perplexed about the notion of worship. He wrote in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, that he understood expressing gratitude and reverence to God and even obedience. But the command to praise perplexed him. He wrote, We all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. We despise still more the crowd of people around every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity who gratify that demand. Applying that to God, he wondered 
why there were these demands for praise and exaltation. In working this through, Lewis began with the concept of admiration. An admirable object, he argues, deserves or demands admiration in the sense that admiration is the correct, adequate, appropriate response to it. Lewis then applies this to God. He says, God is that object to admire, which is simply to be awake, to have entered the real world. Not to appreciate, which is to have lost the greatest experience, and the end, in the end, to have lost all. He observes that there seems to be a universal delight in praising what we love. He wrote, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. Beyond that, we desire to share our delight. We invite others into it in order for it to be completed in us. Praise is the consummation of the joy that we find in admiring someone or something. So the psalmist, who once confounded Lewis, he writes, in enthusiastically imploring us others to praise God, was simply doing what all of us do when we enjoy and worship something. Lewis came to see that it is in the process of being worshipped that God communicates his presence to men. So here's the key point from him. The command to praise is not just so that God can receive something. It is also bound up in him giving of himself. He agrees with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which states that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. In heaven, Lewis says, when we can fully worship God in spirit and in truth, we shall know that these are really the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify God, God is inviting us to enjoy him. So what will you take with you this morning? Well, you're being extended an invitation. The Lord, our holy king, invites you to come be with him, to come enjoy him, to be in a uniquely satisfying relationship. And knowing his magnitude, his goodness, and his kindness will elicit admiration in you. He is wholly other. He's unlike you in the ways you want him to be. He's perfect and infinite in power and wisdom and integrity. And you will want to express that delight. The command to exalt our holy king will be a most natural and joyous decision. For it will be congruent with the reality of who he is and what you're experiencing. So a defining feature of your life if you're a follower of Christ, is that you are a loyal subject of a king. In his majesty, authority, beauty, purity, justice, he deserves your affectionate and heartfelt expression. So we're now going to have an opportunity to do that together right now. I'm going to ask Katie to come and lead us in a song. <clears throat> The Lord is great in Zion. He's exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise his great and awesome name. Holy is he. So please stand with me. And we're 
are going to exalt him.